I guess it's time to get started. God is the God of second chances. As we get into Jonah, we sure have seen um, the character and nature of God. And uh, the, the thing we see tonight is what we, uh, I think we like to study the best, and that's God's sovereign grace. And I think you see that all the way through the book of Jonah. He is sovereign, and He is grace. Third chapter. <laughs> well, you were here the first week, right? No. Oh, this is a shocker. Hey, wherever you're at in Jonah, you just you can't get lost in Jonah. That is that is something. You missed two weeks, and all of a sudden we're halfway through a book. Now that's amazing. That's a yeah. It is. <laughs> it is. We're just doing the overview. Wait till we get into the verse by verse thing. <laughs> Yeah, we'll be well. We'll we'll never finish. We'll leave it to the next generation. Wherever we're, we move off. We've tried Isaiah before. Yeah, yeah. I I think I've had. I think Debbie, you ask if we do Isaiah one time too. We got about halfway through, and then all of a sudden we're moving through the back. I think at least a good an overview of it would be. How much can we get asked? We could do a quick overview, but a few years quick overview. Well, whatever you, whatever you think is good, as long as, hey, long as it's coming from this book, right? That's what counts. Anything here is good. We can't, can't, it can't be bad. Word of God can't be bad. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? It doesn't have to do with Jonah, but I would like to some other on I had a teenager ask me where in the Bible it says you can't masturbate. Oh, well, I didn't know how to respond to that. It's well, not, I, I just said it was the sexual and moral. Let's go to Jonah chapter 3. All right. I, I didn't know how to answer that. I don't know what. It's, it's, it's just the sexual immorality in general. That's what I call them whenever it talks about sexual immorality. Yeah, yeah I kind of respond wow. like that. Like you guys I've never had that question before. I know we're not supposed to, you know, it, I know that the Bible says specifically you can't do same-sex marriages. I know it says specifically you shouldn't do premarital things. But where does it say you can't masturbate? Why don't you ask your youth? (laughs) Do some searching on that. Okay, we're going into Jonah 3. I appreciate your questions. Thanks for your help. I'll tell you what. I don't know what to tell you on that one. But I will... uh, I don't know. I, I might check it out or something, but... I'll send it to you an email. I don't know. I don't know what to say. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, I got to get back. <laughs> you you really asked some good questions, and it's not that it's a bad question, but it's just I've never. <clears throat> I don't know the answer to that, but... I will tell you, I got uncomfortable on that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> okay. So did I. Okay. I'm, I'm just thankful she didn't ask me in front of a bunch of people. Well, hey, God is a God of second chances, so we'll take our second chance at Jonah. 
Okay. Um, I'll tell you what. Go to Luke chapter 11, verse 30. We are. But I want to throw you off. Luke 11.30. See if this makes any sense with Jonah. Uh, Verse 29 is pretty good. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. Good way to start out a Bible study, isn't it? (laughs) It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. And of course, he's going to be uh, preaching <clears throat> judgment of God uh, in chapter 3 that we see. And that was quite a sign. It was a sign of God's judgment. The Son of Man was going to be a, he's also a sign of uh, judgment to uh, that generation that was uh, evil that was wicked and uh, so he uses Jonah that they're familiar with and then he he uh, and the Ninevites uh, he says in verse 31 the queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Does that say a mouthful there? And boy, just that right there, I'm sure they were ready to kill Jesus. He's saying the generation, uh, just these the people that he's speaking to, his own people, uh, the Israelites, and uh, but he says the men of Nineveh will be in judgment. Uh, that, that shows that they had repented, that they they became real believers. They weren't Jews, <laughs> and this is the God who is sovereign in His grace, and He will pick who He wants, when He wants, how many He wants, and it's all at His discretion. And that's how sovereign he is. And this story of Jonah, and especially here in chapter 3, I think is one of the most remarkable proofs of God's grace as he goes to a people that is wicked and evil. And he saves not some, but he saves the whole city. What is known as the greatest revival that this world has ever seen as far as numbers are concerned. No city of this nature has ever been converted. And you can think of Jerusalem when they had 3,000 saved and then 4,000 and 5,000. There were thousands being saved. But in Nineveh, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands being saved as they repented. Nothing has ever been like that and nothing ever will be. Well, that's the uh, ones that were the, the young ones. Um, let's see, what, what verse is that? Last uh, one. Their last verse. Um, okay, so he's talking about 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between the right and left hand as well as many animals. So they're, they're the ones who don't know right and left hand. They're, it's just like those are like like babies 
I think or, this is a, do not know their right and their left hand, this is just a saying to, to, to illustrate how ignorant they are. Yeah. It has nothing to do with knowing your left and right hand, it's just a saying. Well, I've heard most people will say these are small. These would be small children just to start with. Well, archaeologically, in in that city, and of course we go through here. There's probably uh, it has been guessed that there were, uh, if if not a million or more, maybe two million, at least hundreds of thousands of people. And I think most will would would say that these would be ones who would not be uh, adults. Um, at you know. Either way, I mean, it's, we're, we're talking a lot of people, right? Um, if you're talking about three, four-year-old kids, and that's why it would be reasonable to say there's at least probably 600,000. Because it is, and God says it's an exceedingly great city. And and he's, he's talking numbers, you know, and, and the vast uh, size of the city. So it, it, it's definitely huge. I think it would be bigger than Springfield. Springfield, I think, used to be around 120. I think it's about 200,000 now, isn't it? Something like that. That's a pretty good-sized little city. Springfield is. It's the third largest city in Missouri. Springfield, yeah. Kansas City, St. Louis, right. So, at any rate, to, to save a city like that, to, to do what he did, and uh, knowing who they are and their background, of course, nobody's worthy of it, but uh, they they were known as uh, that the, the an evil generation, and yet God goes to them just out of His own own grace. He does it. Today we still use that uh, a phrase like that about uh, the right hand not knowing what the left hand's doing, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, in a figure of speech, there's a lot of things that come out of the Bible like that. Right. Right. Well, um, he had fled, and then we know he is um, in the fish, and then he has the great prayer meeting, and now here comes God to him again as he um, definitely delivered him out of that fish. Three days, and now you have, um, after this prayer... Uh, Jonah's on the dry land, <laughs> and uh, what an experience that is! That's not just uh, something to uh, wink at; it's uh, something to marvel at. <laughs> this is this is uh, truly a tremendous thing. But at the same time, you have to wonder. You know what? Wonder what he wonder what he looks like. Wonder what he feels like coming out of there. And uh, anyway, um, we see that God speaks to him now, and. He probably lands up on the land probably somewhere. We don't know. It doesn't say. But it could be back near the Joppa area. I mean, if you're out in the Mediterranean Sea and then all of a sudden you're spit up on the land, um, what would that mean? It means he's still. if you look at your maps, he still has a long way to go to Nineveh because uh, the Mediterranean Sea doesn't meet at, at Nineveh. And it's not like he's automatically there. He has uh, hundreds of miles to go. So that's going to take a while to get there. But we're not told any of that. But what we are told in verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, 
go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So the first couple of verses, God is reconciling himself to Jonah. The word of the Lord comes to him. Of course, you go back to chapter 1. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittal, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. So something very uh, similar. And he's doing it again. That's why we say this, this is like uh, fresh air again, a second time. And uh, so God is going to test him, to try him, to see if there's going to be any repentance. Now, God knows what it is. It's, it's nothing that, that... God's not going to get anything new, something he doesn't know. But also, at the same time, it's a test for Jonah. He's not going to desert this time, is he? He's going to do his duty. And uh, we see his submission here. Uh, we, know, we know that. Of course, God had released him. And now being put on trial, he's going to show that, um, yeah, he wants to follow the will of the Lord. He wants to go uh, where God sends him. And isn't that what God does? He'll take his stubborn, disobedient children, and um, maybe they haven't been obeying, but then he will bring his children uh, to him to uh, realize that what he says is best. And that's what we wind up uh, desiring to do later. Uh, when God afflicts His children and then delivers them out of affliction, which He did. You have an affliction, then He delivers out of affliction. I think it would behoove the Christian to uh, obey, to hear His voice, and go to the duties that He had originally called us and we had neglected. We are called to do God's uh, duties. And you remember when um, Jesus said to an impotent man, He said, Now go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto you. John five fourteen. Go and sin no more. A worse thing uh, would be, it'd be worse than lying three days and three nights in a fish, right? If uh, one didn't have their spiritual aspect lined up. So God looks upon men. He, he afflicts them, but He also delivers them out of that affliction. And then, uh, what is that person going to do? Are they, are they going to learn out of that? So, when God forgives, would you say that He forgets? Right. It's like He remembers our sin no more. In, in, in the sense, that doesn't mean you know He doesn't have a good memory, but... Um, Humanly, I think if if we think about it, you know, sometimes we uh, we might hear people say, "Well, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget." But if we want to have a true forgiveness, it's it's like what God does, you know, not to remember uh, and uh, bring it up to mind. And what He does, He always gives a new heart, He gives a new spirit, and He restores His people to uh, uh, what their former. Selves were before they ran from the Lord. And I think whenever God uses us and He wants to use Jonah here again, no matter what, He could have said, well, okay, well, that's enough of that. You know, that's, yeah, I'll, I'll deliver you out of the fish, but you're not going to do any more ministry. He calls Him back to do the exact same thing. And I think whenever God is making use of us, I think it's a good evidence that there's a peace uh, 
that that is there. He has a a, a being, a, a peace. And so, you know, sins are pardoned. Uh, God has goodwill towards His His children. I think that's uh, that's rather encouraging, isn't it? In terms of that. But not only does uh, God reconcile Himself to Jonah, and now it'll be that Jonah will also reconcile himself to Him. It's God doing the reconciling, but He doesn't make any objections. Um, and and so we see that that He's ready to go. Uh, what's the nature of repentance? It's uh, it's a change of mind. We know that. We know it's a it's a turning. It's a returning to, um, and as far as a Christian, a returning to our work, to our duty, uh, to our service, to our obedience, to um, uh, realizing that that God has the best thing in mind for us. And so He's going to go back to do doing the good that had been not done. Now, is there a benefit in this affliction? Anything good coming out of this affliction that he's just had? Pretty horrible thing to wind up in a fish. Um, when you think of David, I think it's in Psalm uh, 119, verse 67. I like this verse. And David says, Before I was afflicted, remember this verse? I went astray. Before I was afflicted, I was going astray. I went astray. But now I have kept thy word, and therefore, though it was dreadful, though it was painful to me, and for the present it's not joyous, right? It's grievous, yet it's good. It's very good. It's very good that I was afflicted, David says. Of course, we know some of the things that David went through and see. But you can see quite the affliction. And uh, so, you know, I think this is where God's grace works with affliction. It's His grace whenever He gives us sufferings and pain and affliction. Isn't that... That sounds really strange, doesn't it? Uh, You would think, you know, the affliction would drive people away from God. But He's going to use that to drive people to Him. And, uh, you know, I can think of Jacob. Uh, you know, he he was really a deceiver, wasn't he? He was a master at deceiving. And, of course, he joined himself with a, a man who was uh, met his match, Laban, who was a deceiver also. And so he put up with that for a while. And, of course, Jacob continued to kind of do that. He, he wrestled with God, but actually it was God that wrestled with him. And you remember the socket? You know, or actually, it is like he uh, God did some damage to him physically for the rest of his life. He was not going to be able to walk the way that he had walked before. He'd always remember that God had a wrestling match with him that night. Um, God gave him a second, third, fourth chance. By the way, it's not just a second chance. <laughs> it goes on and on. Of course, we can think of David. You can think of Peter. Uh, you know, when Peter ran out on him like the other disciples did. And, uh, of course, we know that uh, Jesus restores him. And you can go on and on with those stories, but here it is again. I think this is a classic one with, with Jonah. So, we see in verse 3 then, um, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Right? 
Be doers of the Word. He's, he's doing what the Lord said. And so he's the herald. He's the, uh, he's the preacher. That's what God is calling him to do. He went directly to Nineveh. And uh, uh, he had never been there before. Uh, he had heard about it. It's a place where it's um, he's going to go where God sends him. He that's the last place on earth that he wanted to be, but he's heralding in the name of God of heaven, and he's actually proclaiming war with Nineveh, but it's not war with any other kind of nation or empire. But uh, and this is the chief city of the Gentile world. This is it. I mean, this is the top of the line city. Um. And I think this is very much an indication of how the grace of God comes in a place of such darkness and evil and wickedness, and it shines in this whole city. He just chose to do that. Now, he's not done anything like that since in the way that he's done that. He can do those things. This is quite a story when you really think. This is an awesome story. Um. It's it's interesting that he'd give grace to some and then not give grace to others. That's baffling to us. But that's what he does. And that's where a lot of the Jewish people really got angry at him. Of course, they wanted to kill him right off the very bat early in his ministry uh, when he spoke of things. He spoke about his grace on others that weren't them and uh, they were ready to run him off the, uh, the hill and fall to his death. Kill him. Uh, Matthew 11, starting at verse 21. Quite the nature of God here. Seen in this whole story. Um, verse 20, he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because he didn't repent. Like He was all over the area of Bethsaida, Capernaum, where his, you know, his headquarters was at, Chorazin. Miracles were done one after another, after another, after another. People saw them, people experienced them. And, uh, but it says um, he started denouncing these cities because they did not repent. <coughs> He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they didn't have the miracles in Tyre and Sidon. But in these areas, they did just constantly. If they would have happened there, they would have repented long ago. But you haven't. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And that's what happened in Nineveh. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. There's degrees of judgment. There will be a stricter judgment upon that generation that uh, rejected Jesus and they'd, they'd experienced Him right before them and His miracles. And He says, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom which occurred in you. Now he's going all the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Everybody knew about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even today, people who don't even know the Bible don't care about the Bible. They know something about Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he and they, they knew this at this time. If the miracle, uh, 
for if the miracles that occurred in Sodom which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. There wouldn't have been any judgment. If they would have had the miracles, you rejected them. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Oh, that that's going to go over well. You can see why they wanted to kill Jesus. He really is preaching heavy judgment. Now, he's he's showing that um, you know he is the one who can have his own thinking of the way that things are going to go. He can do what he wants, and um, if if he's going to give Nineveh the means of grace and that they're going to repent, he can do that. And he gave them the means. He gave them one preacher with one simple message. How many prophets did God send to Israel? One after another after another for hundreds of years. Then he stopped. And then he brought the prophet, the Son of God, God Himself, (laughs) right and put him right into the middle of the, the people, and they still reject him. But yet, God takes a people like Nineveh, saves the whole city. Means of grace. He, he, he will save some places, others He won't. He'll save some people, others He won't. And that's His sovereign way. And some people would say, well, that's not fair. Right? We hear that. That's not fair. Well, if they really they don't know what they're saying, but if if God was really fair, there would be none saved. It's amazing that He'd even save one or two, but He's He's going to save numbers and who knows myriads through the generations. He's still going to save, so He can do what He wants to do with His own, and the Bible says He is a debtor to no man. So. Go and preach, God says. I bid you to preach. When I first ordered you to go to the children, of course, He didn't go the second time. I want you to go. I want you to do the same thing I told you before. I want you to denounce judgment against it. I want you to go up and tell them they are wicked and God is going to judge them. The vengeance is going to come down upon them. Here's where the message of sin, repentance, judgment has to be continued on because it is throughout the Bible because man is naturally sinful. And we have to preach against sin. We have to preach judgment. And God does not alter the message so Jonah would be safe and it would be okay. He doesn't water it down. Um... He's talking about something really heavy, judgment. Yeah, but they'll listen to you if you just just don't use those words and make it sound a little kinder and maybe you can get a whole city to follow you. No. The only message that he has is that God is going to severely judge them for their wickedness. And so the Word of God is unalterable. God does not change His message. He didn't then and He doesn't now. And shame on the churches who have made their decisions not to preach about sin because it will turn off those new people that come into church and we don't want to offend them. 
and that is not. It's not the gospel. It's not the Bible. The Bible is saying they're sinful. They need to know their sin. They need to see that they're wicked and they, they hate God. And it's only God's grace that can save them. So that's what he brings, and he, he brings it. And God saves who he wants to save by using this message. So if you believe in a sovereign God, if you're preaching the Word of God, you don't have to worry about offending people. You just want God's Word to speak and make an effect on them because if He's going to save them, He's going to do it. If you water down the Gospel, He can still save them if He wants. You will offend them. We will be be offended naturally by the Word of God. We'll be convicted, it says. Convicted by... Uh, righteousness, sin, righteousness, and judgment, and that's that's the message. So that's what he what he tells him to do. So Nineveh, he says, Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk, no small place, the largest in the world at that time. He came to Nineveh, found his place just exceedingly large as a great to God. That's the way the Hebrew phrase is, meaning uh, uh, no more. He's, he's, it's not great to God in that, wow, you know, he's he's overwhelmed by it, but we're talking about just the denomination of, of this place and the amount of people in it and the vastness of how big this place is. It was larger than Babylon, you know, it's, although it's close in that area it's larger and there's one proper city like in St. Louis you have St. Louis proper you think of downtown extends out a little bit but you know it's it's not in a huge way it's still pretty big but then you have a lot of other little cities around it that extend and so you you go from St. Louis to all the way to St. Charles and you've gone in from who knows how many well you have Ferguson right around there right you have a lot of other places St. Peter's and you can go on and on and um, uh, that's the way that Nineveh was it, uh, actually I think if you went to Genesis 10 we might get a little hint here of kind of how it's made up in Genesis 10 verse uh, 11 and 12 Uh, speaking of Nimrod, and it's speaking of Babel and Shinar and such. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh. Speaking of the mighty hunter, Nimrod. And Rehoboth, Ur, and Kela, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kela. That is the great city. So you see cities within the city. That's not too unlike the cities that we have today. And they're all connected. So whenever I think of St. Louis, I think of where it starts on the very outstretches of it, taking in all the cities all the way on into the inner city. Um, Inner city proper is going to have a few hundred thousand, but if you go on out, uh, you will have even more. So anyway, that's that was right in Genesis 10, uh, speaking of the descendants of Noah, and that was uh, not too long after after the flood. This started spreading out, and of course you have Nimrod and 
of course, in that area we are very familiar with today. It's in the news all the time. You're, you're speaking of Assyria, or you can think of Syria and Iraq, right? Iran, just all of that whole area. Um, in in uh, archaeological studies and such, they've come up with the fact that it was there were probably three walled cities within this one. There's the you know a main one at the heart of it, but the uh, there's an entire area that was known as the city, and so you could take that in as Nineveh also. So it's um, th- there was one great big wall around uh, the proper area. It you could have it was so wide on that wall. I think it was like two hundred. 100 feet up, 200 feet up, something like that. Anyway, on on the top of that wall, you could ride three chariots side by side. And um, so the walls are are something. I I think um, you're talking probably 60 miles in breadth just walking through um, that area. If you did 20 miles a day, that would take the three days. 20 miles a day is covering quite a bit. That still allows him a little bit of time to stop. Maybe he's doing it as he as he walks along. He's covering a lot of area, though. Uh, I'm sure he's catching all the principal streets, uh, all the main lanes in that city, and he's proclaiming that message and make sure that everybody hears it. It's going to finally get to the king, and then that's going to spread from there. So that's just some of the things that that he's doing. Um, as as he's going along, he's preaching basically the same message through there and he's talking about judgment I don't think whenever he got into the city he just retired into a, an inn for the night and wanted to refresh himself from his journey that's a long way that he's come from especially going all the way out to the Mediterranean Sea and then getting on the land and then getting uh, his long journey to, uh, to Nineveh however that was uh, done but um, I think he, he does it here immediately and he's speaking yet 40 days. He's crying out. 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Of course, this is where you're going to have the repentance. But uh, I think they had good reason to expect destruction. You know, when, when you hear of something, some natural disaster or some kind of something that happens here in America, uh, how many times do people s- start saying, see, you know, that was an evil city. God's judging that. Well, God judges all the time. You know, I, it very well may be, um, and that, that's a, that's a thought. I mean, it, but it, it does wake people up sometimes. It's kind of funny when something like that happens. You think of nine one one, and all of a sudden, you had people going back to church, and people were like, you know, they were they had questions and uh, they were really bothered by what happened, and within a few weeks. It just died out again. Yeah. Short memories. Short memories. That's right. So I think that they knew um, that if they really look at the lifestyles that they uh, were uh, living, um, that yeah, they they could deserve destruction uh, if maybe that message gets out. They had luxurious living. Um, sexual immorality was at its peak, and the drunkenness and idolatry and the godless music, the cruelty, the brutality of that. They were known as brutal people 
especially the way they treated their enemies was uh, just horrible. Um, it, and it's interesting, if you've got a guy walking down the streets possibly looking like what Jonah could have looked like at that time. We don't know. God could have used a miracle and made him look just like he was before. Or he could have made him look like he just came out of a fish. And he can say, well, wonder what that looks like. Well, there's a guy by the name of Dr. Harry Rimmer, a little over 100 years ago, told a story of a man who spent two days in a fish, not by his own will, Two days in a fish. And he was put on display in London as the Jonah of the 20th century. <laughs> or 18th or whatever. 19th century. Um, two years later, he was spotted by a guy and he said, yeah, he had no hair on his body and his skin was yellowish brown. And it was because of the gastric juices that's in that fish and what the gastric juices do. Well, they react. And that's acid. And that's part of the digestion system. And, of course, if you're in a fish like that, the digestive juices are going. It could have made them look bleached. But we know it, it it would have done something to him naturally. God could have intervened and made him look just fine, but a lot of times God will leave you as you are. Of course, I think of uh, whenever he wrestled with uh, uh, Jacob. Um, Jacob never forgot that, did he? And it remained. And so God uses natural and supernatural things. Uh, but... I would have to think that that's probably what it is as he's walking out. And maybe somebody knew that there was something, something happened to him. And he's, you know, he's telling, you know, yeah, I, I, I was a dead man. God brought me out of this. You, you can take a look. Here's what happened. So, anyway, um, can you imagine somebody walking to him? Brother, where have you been? I'm a man from death. They should have died. God is a slow God to wrath. He is a patient, patient God. At the end of 40 days is kind of the message. But he He's going to spare them for 40 days. He spared the world from being flooded for 120 years. Slow to wrath. So, we pick it up. Um, Verse 4, Jonah began to go through the city. That's what, just what we've been talking about. One day, after one day walk, he cried out and said, Yet forty days and then it will be overthrown. Now we know there's, there's, it's a three days walk. Right in the very first day, we've already, you see how much uh, has happened here as he cries out. And that's his message. Forty days, Nineveh will be overthrown. God is going to judge. So look at verse 5 through 9. This is where Nineveh believes. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He 
he issued a proclamation that said in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing do not let them eat or drink water no water, no food but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly you ever heard of a king saying that to his people a whole city, a whole area, that each may turn from his wicked way, there's repentance, and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Boy, that says a lot. We're talking about a pagan city and it doesn't take much... The message is basically, he's just coming in saying the the same thing probably over and over and over. He's repeating it. This city is going to be destroyed in 40 days. And they come to... One man walking down the streets doing that? And that's going to turn a whole city. You've got to be kidding me. Well, if God's got in mind and He's going to use one man to do that, a man that doesn't even want, didn't even want to do it, that, that shows you how powerful God is. <laughs> that He can turn their hearts just like that. This is amazing. When I get to heaven, it will be interesting to be able to talk to people from Nineveh. Have you ever thought about that? And there will be a lot of them. Kind of blows our minds. You know, we think of people in the Arab lands... And we think how evil and wicked they are. But how many has God graced and brought to Christ in amazing ways? And so therefore, it's not just America, is it? In fact, I think we'd really be surprised, and especially when we realize all the martyrs that are, that are uh, either being killed right at this moment have been or will be and uh, of course they've, they've come from this same area here too God has grace on these particular people so we, we get to see in 5 through 9 how God is gracious to a sinful city and like I say this is perhaps I think really it, it, as far as numbers are concerned it's the greatest revival in the history of the world When you call it a revival, it means people are turning from their sin and turning to God. Now, what happened in Nineveh is an amazing thing. And I don't ever downplay the day of Pentecost. And we we don't just do it because of numbers. But just sheer numbers is an incredible thing here. At Pentecost, we know that there were thousands saved. And in Jerusalem, there were, as I mentioned earlier. But when when you're talking immense number of people in a, in a city who are turning to God a whole city is uh, there's never been anything like that you start from the time of Adam and Eve and then as, as you know cities became cities and they grew you don't hear of this story like this and an entire city turning to God the great awakening was was amazing but you're only talking thousands of people there in in New England and up and down the coast and then over in England there's thousands of people that that it's a great revival and it's not anything less 
because it's same God's same move. But he he even picks the numbers and and uh, but at this one right here, he wants to show a quite a display of his grace. And I can't think of anything more powerful than this. Although anything else is when one person comes to the Lord, but uh, no one's seen that happen all the way to the present time. What a moving of the Spirit of God. And everybody is repenting. Just like that. In a moment's time. Can you imagine the stories that the people were talking about? How about strange people? The strangers, I'm sure, would be coming to that city. Coming in there and everybody is a believer. I wonder how many of those people became believers as a result of that. I will tell you, what is it, within 150 years, uh, there was judgment put upon Nineveh. So the next generation kind of lost it. What a revival. That is amazing. This is our God, folks. He pulls off something that nobody would imagine. I mean, that sounds like a fairy tale. It's not. Divine grace. Look in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41. We read this earlier. Now see if it sticks out even more. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But there's something... You know, as great as Jonah is, (laughs) there's something much greater than that. And we know it's it's Christ. You know, that's what it's all about. But uh, he he was... That that picture is shown uh, in Jonah in his preaching and, and the repentance that happened. And of course, Christ is... Um, the ultimate preacher. He's the ultimate prophet. And God used one man. You know, we... we yeah, Barb. When you say you know, there's nothing greater than Christ, we all know that. I'm wondering if anybody saw on the news tonight where, you know, the Pope's in Washington, D.C. right now, and uh-huh. he's going to visit a little tiny chapel, I think in a Catholic charity's headquarters or something. And they were interviewing the priest that is over that little chapel and he said there is nothing greater than the Pope coming to visit us. Hmm. And I, I just took that wrong. I don't I don't know if he means nothing on earth greater than that, but just to eliminate the possibility and to, to put the Pope above Well to take it literally in the way that he's he's representing Christ here on earth. I think he so, thinks he is great. Yeah. Oh. Uh, they they kiss. They they kiss his. You know. Yeah. Bowing him, worship him. Well, what did Jesus say? Verily I say unto you, we have not found so great an instant of it, no, not in Israel, and it will rise up in judgment against the men of the generation and condemn them. 
for the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, a greater than Jonah is here. That must have burned some ears. <laughs> talking about, yeah. He's talking about the Gentiles that are going to judge them. And that's exactly what he said there. They're going to condemn them. That makes your yeah. jaw drop, doesn't it? They belong to God, not not you, who is you know telling, who is pretending to belong to God. Right. <coughs> awesome. The uh, obstinacy uh, that Israel had, and, and it's so interesting that here is only one missionary to this many people, and God can do that, and He wouldn't have to. Take a missionary. He didn't even need one. Matter of fact, he in in the human sense, I think he could do a lot better if he wouldn't use any. <laughs> but he, but despite ourselves, he uses. That's his means. That's usually how he works. He will bring someone to a person, to another person. That's usually how he works, or someone to a group of people. But it's that one-on-one is the best. But right here, it's one to all these these other ones. And how many prophets that they had? And then Jesus Christ Himself in front of them, you know. And here, then He says this big judgment here. Uh, what a what a sermon! Jonah preaches one sermon, basically the same thing. He doesn't give any signs or wonders that we're told of here. Um, he doesn't give anything, any kind of an accompaniment that would confirm that what he says is true. They just listen to this one message and like that, they become saved. Uh, the Word of God. That's the whole thing. That's why it's sovereign grace. That's exactly right. And he didn't need to bring Jonah there. He could have just converted him right there. But no, it says by the preaching of the Word of God. Well, I don't want to get into next week. But I'm <laughs> not pleased. This yeah. didn't excite Jonah that this had the effect that God wanted. He's just not going to give it up. He did what he was supposed to do. He did it. And you'd you'd like to think, okay, the end of of it was right at the end of chapter three. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, we still have our own um, biases and our prejudices, even when as Christians, and we may not even know it. You know, maybe somebody could point it out to us, and we say, well, I've gotten through all of that, but we probably still have a lot of prejudices that we don't even imagine. And, you know, God can show those to us as time goes on. But, uh, you know, you don't really see Him, as you say that in chapter 4 there, you don't... Now, we don't know exactly what His message is, but basically it's about judgment. And if He's going to say anything, that's what it is. He doesn't want them to repent, but He knows God is that kind of God that's going to do that. Yeah. He said, I knew this is what you knew this. <laughs> I knew this is what you. Would, that's why I didn't want to go to Darchit. I knew this. Is, I knew this. Exactly. Because I knew how compassionate. And, I didn't want it to be like that. They probably really given this message with some gun ho 
God's coming to get you. I'm going to repent. Yeah, 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 probably right. loved it. Yeah, yeah, he was probably having a great time with it, but that was probably the one that concerned him. I was reading in Matthew Henry, and he says, we don't find that he gave them any calls to repentance. Now, you might challenge that, but, you know... And, and, and it is in one sense, but in another sense, he's just giving the fact that God is going to judge, and he did later on. But he would, does we know he he relents on that forty day thing there. But uh, I don't think you you get any directions on how to repent here. I don't. He's not getting into the depth of that. I think that's a, a quite the thought there. He is not telling them how to repent, but he it's it's a message that's getting them to repent as God is going to soften their heart so they can repent. Um, and they're actually given credit to the Word of God here that Jonah had spoken to them. Uh, you know, the, the name of God. Um, you know, they're realizing that this one Creator God, this one who they're accountable to, um, they have to repent. They know they have to know that he is just, and yeah, he could judge us because of this. They they have to realize and hope that there's some kind of hope that there's mercy in this. And so, if we repent, maybe just possibly he might keep from bringing the judgment. The whole city turns, and and they have this. They've got this hope here. They're believing, and um, so God can take a, a a small man, one a weak man, the least likely, and give the truth. Uh, he just gives a few threatening words, and obedience comes. <laughs> um, some people say, well. Uh, maybe some people knew that he had been cast into the sea and delivered by a miracle, and there uh, he's confirming who he is. You know, um, we don't know. We, we're, we're, not, we're not given that much. We can speculate. It's kind of interesting to do that, but you know, a lot of times I'll put that in there. It's worth a thought. We have no certainty on a lot of things, but you know that could be possible. It's going around, or people ask him, you know, where, where did you come from? And I'm sure he probably doesn't really want to talk too much, but um, yeah. yeah, I was just going to uh, compare something here. Uh, verse nine, there. Who could tell if God will turn relent, turn away from His fierce anger? so that we may not perish. Then you go back to uh, chapter 1, verse uh, verse 6. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Similar thought there. Exactly. There's a pagan again. Your God. They're realizing that his God... Seems to be more powerful than their gods. Yeah, certainly around in there, that was that would be, that would be their the, god, yeah, Dagon. That, that, well, that's the whole thing. There were many of them. Kind of made me think <coughs> why they repented is because they did see him come out of that fish's mouth belly. The story might have gotten around. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. Their cultural thing was of what they 
that's interesting that God would use a fish. Of course, in the sea, why? (laughs) But it's interesting that God would even think of that. You know, I mean, would you have thought of doing that? Hmm. Um, The word is going around. Word gets to the king. Now, can you imagine if he would have just walked up to the palace? He's probably not going to be able to get anywhere. Matter of fact, he'll probably be hauled off, thrown into jail, or if not worse. Um, But... So he didn't go to him directly. He went to the streets. Went to the streets of Nineveh. God protects him. And the king of Nineveh hears about it. And boom. God opens his heart up. That's all you can say. Verse 6. When the word reached the king of Nineveh. Just like this. The word reaches him. You'd think he would just laugh that off. Immediately he arose from his throne. Laid aside his robe. There is the pride of this man, of this king, the, the mightiest ruler on earth at that time. And there he is. He is going to repent in sackcloth and ashes and he's going to take off his royal robe. And it's like saying, I bow to this almighty God. Most kings would think that they are the one to be worshipped. But uh, this is a, a message from heaven and he recognizes it. You know, um, another book, another story uh, with a similar uh, type of thing because it's all with God converting people. It's Rahab, you know, and how the fear came over the city there. And, you know, she was God-fearing and she uh, then helped the Israel uh, people, you know, the, the soldiers, whatever, to to hide them and that sort of thing and then ask for protection of her family and her house and that sort of thing. So, But it's mm-hmm. like, it's all about, you know, fearing God is that beginning of wisdom thing. Mm-hmm. Just like James started the beginning of learning, learning Him. <laughs> learning His mercy. That, uh, yeah, that's how God's worked. He's always gone to some of the Gentile world when he does that, it's like shocking to people. But he and he puts her in like a, the genealogy. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and then she, I mean, she she grows up all of her life, and that's what he's appointed her for. And look at the background that she came from yeah. <laughs> and what she was doing. She had a purpose to be where she needed to be. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was that minister uh, for such a day as this? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so. Uh-huh. Um, whether God works behind the scenes or just obvious up front, man, He is just turning everything the way that He wants it, doesn't He? And um, this this king takes it as... He, he fears this word here and, and this wrath. And I, I think he senses his sin. Uh, I don't think. I, I know he does. Uh, all of these people, the sorrow and the shame they have for sin. And you see what that message did? That's why we are to preach repentance and turning from sin and not be ashamed of it. Um, I'm sure that they were obnoxious to, to God. A stench. you know, and, and His wrath should have been brought upon them. But He doesn't. doesn't bring His wrath. Lays aside His royal robe, the king does. Forfeits His throne, gives it up. Realizes the justice of God. He knows He's unworthy. And he knows that there's still maybe some hope 
if perhaps maybe God may turn. Who knows? <laughs> God may turn and relent. Oh boy. Don't we pray for that all the time? Pray for the kings, the rulers? Yeah, boy, you know, that's... Because that's what it is. It's like the dominoes fell from the throne on down. He uh, did what a leader really is to be, and that's humble himself. And as he humbled himself, he was quite the example to the to much of the rest of the people. Not that he turned them, but uh, he does say all the right things, and he's doing the right things. He, you know, he's covering himself with sackcloth, sat on the ashes. He's not doing his royalty thing now. He issued a proclamation. I mean, he's proclaiming this, and and the rest of the people that are helping him lead in this uh, city, and said in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. And whenever a decree happens, that means everybody is to follow it, right? Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Not only are the people fasting, but the animals are. Putting the clothes on the animal thing, I just don't understand. I'm sorry. Is that coming? <laughs> um, I've got a note in here that tries to make sense of that, but uh, and I'll tell you about it in a second. But uh, I was thinking too that you know what is the in Proverbs or Psalms where it says that the Lord turns the heart of the king. You know, he, that's so, right there. You know. He, he, the Lord decrees it, and it the king speaks it. Speaks what the Lord. So, it, and it, if God decrees it, it, it will yeah. be that way. Yeah. And so it did, because that was he, uh, the plan. Provides what he commands. <laughs> and so you have a king that would be the least like likely person, and God, uh, people are conformed uh, to that, and from the greatest yeah, to, to the least. Influence. He has, you know. Yeah. He's Things really happen then, you know. I'm sure. <clears throat> Humiliation, I think, when you when you think of sackcloth, and um, I'm sure that they're seeing their their sin. Um, there were people that were used to fine linen, and they're putting on gunny sacks. This was an uneasy thing to do. <laughs> yeah, and that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to make you feel very uncomfortable because you realize how sinful you are. They had a deep sense of sin. That whole city. Covered over. I think that's uh, not too much of a stretch. I think that that's what it is. And you think, well, why the animals? Why, why a fast? Basically, you're sitting there saying, yeah, yeah. Basically, it's sitting there show the whole cities in mourning, like during their animals. Yeah. And the bride, yeah. And the animals are in servitude to yeah. man anyway. Yeah. So we just include them as part of the mourning. So they weren't just like whipping up outfits for the animals. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, of course we see that throughout Scripture and see it yeah. during the time of Christ. And that's um, definitely a customary way. And of course they knew it too. I doubt if they did it very often. Of course what happens if 
and that, that's to show your humility outwardly. Of course, a lot of people can show their that they think they're really humbling, you know, as they put on their religious garb or their show that they have, but inwardly they're not. In this case, this is showing what's happening inwardly, and um, they they were are repenting in that way. In that way, it's it's an it's like a national mourning, you know. And it may have been just a thought that came to him. It's like, if we can do this, what more can we do? We've got to save our city. We've got to save ourselves. We've got to save our city. Yeah. Anything they could think of to do. To be humble. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, very desperate. They They took it very seriously. Because he said that's this is what this is really what he was offering. He wasn't really saying, "Hey, God can save you, you know, if you'll only do this and do." <laughs> yeah. But they take that sense, though. They now are wanting to show, and repentance is and believing are are the two elements that in, salvation is involved with. Repent and believe, and so they did. And we can read this today and say, well, what outward action did they do? He could have said, just left us right there, and they believed, and then that was it. And we go, yeah, well, a lot of people believe, but that doesn't mean that they are true believers, right? And here we see that they took it to heart. Yeah. Truly convicted of their sin and knowing that they, they deserved it. And I think that verse 9 is so interesting. Who knows? God may turn you know, he doesn't have to. He's not bound to what we do or what we say. But he he might. He he may do this and relent. And then the question is, well, does God relent? Does he does he change his mind? Well, we know that a characteristic of God is that he doesn't change his mind. But so how do we deal with this conflict? Because God doesn't change his mind, but yet he changes his mind because he says he's going to destroy the city in 40 days. We've seen that happen before. Go back to the time of Moses in Exodus. And he was going to judge and wipe out all of Israel. And, you know, Moses stands in between the people and God. And, you know, he intercedes, you know, just like Christ. Well, was God saying, oh, wow, I didn't know this was going to happen. I guess I'm going to have to do this. He knows all along. But I think one of the best ways to answer that, and most of your commentators will use the word anthropomorphism, and um, that's dealing with God is putting Himself in a way that man can understand that, you know, and he and he still does that today. He offers his his uh, salvation through our preaching, so that people would repent. And at the same time, uh, we know that God has His plan on how who He's going to save and what He's going to do. But had they not repented, they would have been judged. But He does change the fact that that forty days He doesn't judge. And so there, you know, as long as people are being are crying out in, in repentance and are believing in God. Then their sins will not be held against them, you know, in uh, an individual way. But uh, he redeems the means, not just the end. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what you know, changing his mind, so to speak, is within his sovereign 
I mean, I think it fits in with this obviously. I know he doesn't. He knows all along what's going on. I don't see a conflict there. Yeah. Well his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't totally understand. Right. And we're good with that. But a lot of people would say, see that doesn't that doesn't make sense. And you can you can read about this story of Jonah and there's not a lot of things in here that make sense. (laughs) That conversation that Abraham has with the Lord you know, about Sodom and about uh, the bargaining or whatever you want to yeah. say, you know, about that and everything. That that's pretty interesting kind of in context of this Yeah. You know, I mean he he uh, uh would you say he the Lord relented? Well he did judge Sodom. And mm-hmm. uh, of course he got the righteous people out <laughs> out of there that Abraham was bargaining for. And those are the ones that he had chosen yeah. uh, <laughs> before yeah. anyway. Yeah, right. But, yeah. Um, so there's another perspective. And so, yeah, I think in the sense of seeing it the way that, that man can understand it best, uh, yeah, and, and when we see a sovereign God, we don't have any trouble with that. But uh, some would, would say, see... Uh, God changes his mind all the time. Right, he's depending on man. Right. Well, he spared Nineveh, and um, they've repented of the evil, and uh, the judgment is uh, has been pronounced. But uh, he withholds. You don't see any sacrifices offered to God here. I mean, like animals, atonement for sin, anything like that. But the sacrifice of God is what. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, right? I think that's what we see in these Ninevites. And God will not despise it. Don't see that at all, do we? <laughs> Nothing like that at all. What's the, what's the overall bottom line purpose of the book of Nineveh? The book of Jonah. I think it's all summed up in Matthew chapter 12 where Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, the whole book, this whole episode, was orchestrated by God to illustrate what was going to happen to Jesus. And the disciples didn't get it. They should have, when Jesus was buried, looked at their watch and said, well, now it's one day, now it's two days, now it's three days, he's going to come out. That's what this story is illustrating. And they didn't believe it. But that's the whole point of the book. All these other things are true, but there's the point of the book is that Jesus is going to be resurrected after three days and three nights in the earth. And to carry that a little bit further, uh, Jesus after he was with the disciples when they, when he had come back and was there on the beach in the Sea of Galilee with them, they was eating the fish for a number of days. Uh, he told them, I'm going to send you out into all the world, among the Gentile world, and you're going to create disciples by the spreading of the word. Jonah went to Nineveh and spread the word, and you're going to do that too. The disciples say, oh, no, we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, remember Jonah? 
He went out and the whole city believed. You're going to go out into the whole world and I'm going to go with you and the whole world is going to believe. And there's not going to be just a few hundred thousand in the city of Nineveh. There's going to be 200, 300, 400 million in the world because of you going out. And I think that's the whole point of the book of Jonah. All this others just kind of filling to fill in the story. The story is that Jonah was buried for three days and came back to life and went out and preached. Jesus was buried three days. He empowered his disciples to go out and preach, and they had results thousands of times greater than Jonah did. She said, I'm going to be with you. Now the devil's going to go and try to stop you. He's going to be like a roaring lion, as Peter said, and to kill, seal, and destroy. But he can't stop the gospel. He's buried. He's confined to a pit, and he cannot deceive the world. Oh, he can create all sorts of problems. He can kill, steal, and destroy, but he can't stop the gospel from going forth. And that's what the story, the whole basic backdrop of this story is. He can't stop the gospel because Jesus had sent him out. Right. What, what's the heart of the gospel? It's the resurrection of Christ. And all through the book of Acts, what are they preaching? But the disciples didn't get there. They went hid in a room. They had this story. They should have, if they'd have taken it to heart and believed it, they should have been there in front of the tomb on the third day and said, okay, now it's time. He ought to come out right now. They, they were hid. Yeah. The disciples didn't want to go out into the world and preach the gospel, I don't think, until Jesus told them this story there on the lake of shore of the Galilee and said, now I'm going to go with you and I'm sending you out and you're going to have results that's going to so far exceed Jonah's that you wouldn't believe. All over the world rather than just one city, didn't it? Still going on. And so therefore, and of course the person of Christ being at the heart of that gospel story. And what's it all about? The devil's going to oppose you everywhere you go. I know a man friend of mine uh, who is in uh, Papua New Guinea, a nation of islands. Uh, he's been there three times. He's over there right now. Uh, he lives about a block and a half from me. Uh, they's having church one Sunday morning. Uh, a group of so-called terrorists came in they killed the pastor, his wife, his three children, 30 people within the church, and burned a stack of Bibles. The devil is going around seeking whom he may destroy, kill, steal, and destroy him. The next day, a group of people from that island came, collected up the bodies, buried him. Within a week, there was another pastor from another island had come over with a boatload of new Bibles in their, in their language, gave these Bibles out to the people, to the very people who had taken the machetes and killed the pastor. And the next Sunday they had church again. The devil can do all these horrendous things. He cannot stop the spread of the gospel. It continues on. Anywhere he goes. That's what Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 means. Everybody reads into it a lot of things that they'd like to read into it, but he is only bound to stop the spread of the gospel. He's still free to do everything else. The gospel goes 
unto eternity. And to realize that we have that privilege not only to carry it out, but it was brought to us. And you know, We don't have the just, privilege, we have the obligation to do it. Well, it's also a privilege and, and a responsibility. It's, a it's both. It's a privilege for Jonah, yeah. but he was... He didn't take it that way, did he? He went because he was obligated. God told him to go, and he had to go. And and we should never see it just as, you know, we should see it as a command and joyously to that. But what what a, yeah, the desire to to have that, that, that's what it's about, to give that word. And it all focuses on the life of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. We don't always understand how glorious that is. <laughs> the command, the opportunity, share it. Share it. Share it. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? Sharing it with everybody. Best thing we can possibly do.